There we go. Um, I do have to apologise a little bit because uh, over the last couple of weeks I've actually neglected our memory verses. Um, it just actually slipped, slipped my mind. I'm very sorry about that. So um, I want to get back into it. I want to make sure that we do put up our, our memory verses on, on a weekly basis. And, and of course this is a, an initiative of Vision Media. It's called the Treasury Project, 52 weeks of scripture memorization. And the, the scriptures that have been chosen really form the basis of the Christian faith. And so they're fabulous verses to memorize. For this week, it's 1 Peter 1 verse 3. And I should also mention that the translation that is being used for the Treasury Project is the NIV the New International Version. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And of course, that's what we've just celebrated through the act of communion. Uh, here we go, we've lost our connection again, so we shall have to stop and start. Um, it's a known problem, apparently, with the particular type of iPad that we use here at church. And we have a problem with the screen freezing. But anyway, we'll get that sorted one of these days. I wonder if um, anybody has wondered a little bit about the mural which is being painted on the back of the sound barrier, just on the western side of the motorway near where we live in Ormo, on Creek Street, which is the service road just running on the eastern side of the M1 off exit 45 as you head towards Highway Church. Well, uh, I've um, watched the progress of the mural over a few months now, and I only recently, very recently, in fact, yesterday, <laughs> became aware of the story behind it. And it's actually been organised by the War Memorial Committee, the Ormo War Memorial Committee. And uh, this particular part of the mural, which I think has been finished now, uh, depicts Private David Wilkie, who was born in, in Cedar Creek and was working on farms in the area when he enlisted for the First World War on the 26th of January, 1916. A couple of his mates, Fred and John Peachy, also uh, joined up at the same time. And of course, uh, the Peachy family are remembered in the street name of Peachy, uh, Peachy Road, which is also in, in, in Ormo. At the end of 1916, uh, Dave Wilkie was sent to the Western Front, but he developed an ear infection, and without antibiotics, which didn't really exist back then, the ear infection eventually required a major operation and he took seven months to recover from it. He rejoined the 31st Battalion in France in August 1917 and was killed in action less than two months later at Polygon Wood in the Ypres section of Belgium. And that happened on the 26th of September 1917. Although Dave has no known grave, his raw records suggest that he is buried in the vicinity of Polygon Wood. His name was inscribed on the Menengate Memorial in Belgium and it was well known at the time in the local community that Dave was sweethearts with local woman, 
Charlotte Miles, who never married after the war. And so that whole mural is actually a war memorial for folk uh, in the Ormo area. So yeah, just keep a watch on the progress of that over the next, uh, over the next little while. Well, um, I want to talk a little bit about Anzac Day. And uh, it's become a little bit of a tradition for us here at Ignite Life Church to spend some time um, on or around Anzac Day reflecting on some aspect of the Anzac message. And we've got this screen, screen freeze problem again. But at least now I know what the problem is. It's not something that I'm doing wrong. There we go. I want to talk about a person by the name of Nancy Wake. And uh, I'll do that, that in a moment because I want to say a few things about uh, Anzac Day. I, I don't know about you, but we, uh, we joined others in our street at 6am yesterday morning and uh, we had the uh, Queensland RSL service that was, was playing through uh, my iPad and uh, there were others in the street doing similar things. Nothing was quite synchronised, so, <laughs> so it was a bit comical um, at times. But um, it was really wonderful to stand out the front in the, the cool of the morning, knowing there were lots and lots of people in our neighbourhood who were honouring the, the memory of those who'd given their lives in the many, many theatres of war that Australia has been involved in. And uh, also honouring those who continue to serve or who have served and survived through the many wars, conflicts and peacekeeping exercises that Australia has been involved in. Uh, at the end of the ceremony, a couple of warbirds flew over. They were off in the distance a little bit, but um, we, we saw them. And then someone sent up a drone which unfurled an Australian flag about 100 metres above the houses in our neighbourhood, and it was really quite moving. After that, uh, we spoke for probably 15 or 20 minutes with our neighbours, which was also a wonderful thing, and uh, then off we went and enjoyed the rest of the day. And I know that there would have been hundreds of thousands of people around our nation who did something similar. I listened to a little bit of talkback radio later in the day, and lots and lots of people were ringing in, sharing their experience with their own dawn service at the end of their driveways. Uh, so Australians united to remember Anzac Day yesterday. There was something in common. We had something in common yesterday with Anzac Day in 1919. Because that Anzac Day was also cancelled in terms of public ceremonies. And it was cancelled for a rather similar reason. Because that was the time of the Spanish flu. No one is quite certain how it started. There are various theories about where and, and how it started. But certainly by the time that Australian soldiers were returning to Australia... It was rampaging in many parts of the world. We don't know for sure how many people died. Um, estimates vary from as low as 30 million, which is three times the number who were killed in the war, right up to 
100 million people. And uh, in many, many countries, including Australia, somewhere between a quarter and a third of the population actually contracted the virus. This virus was a little bit different to COVID-19 and also the flu virus that was behind a pandemic in 1891. In 1891 and in 2020, the, the virus has affected mainly the elderly, whereas the Spanish flu, after the First World War, it affected people in the prime of their lives. And uh, many died within three or four hours of contracting the disease. Their lungs filled with fluid, they found it impossible to breathe, and, and they died. In fact, that flu was also known as the pneumatic influenza because of its uh, impact on the respiratory system of, of people. So Anzac Day 2020 was in some ways, like Anzac Day 1919. Interestingly, as I did some, some reading from um, history writers, I realised that government responses to the Spanish flu were similar in some ways to the government responses to the current COVID-19 pandemic. So there were shutdowns of social gatherings, Schools were closed, theatres were closed, dance halls, hotels and even churches were closed at the time. There were closures of border crossings and in fact uh, there were quarantine camps set up on either side of the state borders. There was also the urging of personal hygiene through things like coughing etiquette, hand washing and disinfection. There were also desperate e efforts to produce a vaccine it was a live virus vaccine using the, a mixture of victims' sputum, streptococcus and staphylococcus. I'm not sure that I'd want to be injected with something like that. Um, but the records indicate that throughout Australia, nearly 900,000 people received the, the vaccine. Um, I wasn't able to determine how successful it was. I wasn't able to um, find any, any records about the success. Uh, bearing in mind that Australia's population at that time was 5 million, almost 20% of the population were vaccinated. It wasn't compulsory, but thousands and thousands of people demanded it, and vaccination stations were set up in many, many cities and towns throughout the nation. Around about 15,000 people in Australia died from the Spanish flu. Some of them, of course, were soldiers who had returned from the world, from the First World War. So when you combine the ravages of the First World War with the ravages of the Spanish flu, the world's economic and social systems weren't in very good repair by the end of 1920, just 100 years ago. There were multiple waves of the Spanish flu, and it remains to be seen if the current coronavirus operates in the same way. We don't know yet. We'd guess, I guess we'll have to, to wait and see. Uh, mercifully, Australia's and the world's uh, death tally from COVID-19 is much, much lower, at the moment at least. Um, as of yesterday, 78 Australians had died as a result of the virus, almost all of them over 60 years of age. And around the world, it was about 196,000 people had died. 
You know, over the last week I've been reflecting on, on Anzac and, and what it means because I did want to, to bring a message today which uh, in some ways reflected uh, Anzac Day. One reason for that is that way back to the first Anzac Day after uh, First World War, there was a strong influence by the Christian faith. And today, for many people in Australia, the Anzac service is the only exposure they ever have to Christian prayer and Christian hymns. And for that reason, I would have to say that I'm very glad that in recent years, attendances at Anzac Day have increased quite markedly. Now, I don't know whether it will ever become a launching pad for evangelism in the nations of Australia and New Zealand, but at least this is one aspect of our culture that hasn't yet been assailed by those on the left who want to rid our nation of anything that is Christian. It is still a Christian service. In fact, Jeanette commented to me last night that Anzac Day is almost like a religion and, and my response was yes, well I'm kind of glad about that because as I said, this is one of the rare occasions when most Australians engage in Christian prayer and Christian hymn singing. One of the things that I was reflecting on uh, during the week was the way in which war often turns ordinary people into heroic figures. And uh, because I'm going to do a little bit of reading, I'm actually just going to turn my video off. You don't need to see the top of my head um, while I read. But I, I have some photos of a lady by the name of Nancy Wake up on the screen. And I just encourage you to focus on those, those photos and, and reflect on the fact that she's an ordinary looking person. You know, she, would, she looked pretty good in her young days, the photo that you can see on the right of your screen is a photo taken of her uh, in her late 20s when she was living in, in France. And the photo on the left is a much more recent photo taken much closer to the end of her life. And like everybody else, her hair went white and she grew some wrinkles and there were plenty of, uh, there's plenty of evidence of sun on, on her face. But one of the things that interested me about Nancy Wake was that she was a fairly ordinary person, but she was someone who did extraordinary things during World War II. And I want to tell a little bit of her story today. Nancy was born in Wellington, New Zealand, but before her second birthday, she moved with her family to Sydney, where she was educated. She was much younger than her brothers and sisters and strongly independent. Sadly, her father deserted the family. He actually said to the family, I'm going to New Zealand to make a film about the Maoris. And that was the last they ever heard or saw of him again. So she was brought up by her embittered mother without affection. Nancy adored her father and as far as I know, she never saw him again for the rest of her life. Nancy ran away from home at 16 
and worked as a nurse. Not long after that, an aunt from New Zealand sent her £200, which was a very large sum in those days, and she used it to travel to England and Europe in 1932, where she worked as a journalist. She ended up settling in, in France and married a wealthy French businessman, Henri Fiocca, in November 1939, reportedly because he was good at the tango and she liked to dance. In the 1930s, during visits to Berlin and Vienna, Nancy witnessed the rise of Hitler, Nazism and anti-Semitism. She was forever determined to work against the Nazis when she witnessed utterly inhumane torture in Vienna. Stormtroopers whipping Jews who were chained to giant wheels rolling around the streets. Can you imagine it? She witnessed this and that changed her forever. Not long after Germany invaded France, Nancy and her husband joined the French resistance, but they worked independently. And that was always the case when husbands and wives joined the resistance. It was simply too dangerous for them to work together. Between 1940 and 1942, she worked as a courier delivering messages and supplies, and she bought an ambulance. She was beautiful, she was married to a wealthy man, so she had many freedoms that other people didn't have. So she bought an ambulance and uh, she used that ambulance to help Jewish refugees fleeing from the German advance. She managed to obtain false papers that allowed her to stay and work in the Vichy zone in occupied France and helped at least a thousand Allied prisoners of war and downed airmen to escape through Spain. Now that sentence doesn't take very long to read or to write for that matter as I did yesterday. Think about it. She helped at least a thousand Allied prisoners of war and downed airmen to escape from France over the Pyrenees and across to Spain. It was not too long before she came to the attention of the Gestapo. They nicknamed her the White, now, the White Mouse because she was so good at evading them. She ended up with a five million franc price on her head. Eventually, it became too dangerous for her to stay in France. She made no less than six attempts to exit France through the Pyrenees and on into Spain, once being captured by the Vichy militia and interrogated for four days. With the help of Patrick O'Leary, known as the Scarlet Pimpernel of World War II, she tricked her captors into releasing her. Upon successful repatriation to Britain in June 1943, she trained in the French section of the British Special Operations Executive, which worked with local resistance groups to sabotage the Germans. In April 1944, she was parachuted into the Auvergne region in central France with Major John Farmer. Their orders were to locate and organise the bands of Marquis 
to establish arms and munition caches which were parachuted in four nights each week and also to arrange wireless communications with Britain. The ultimate goal of her work was to organise the resistance for D-Day. Now it's interesting that, that she and um, uh, her colleague Major John Farmer, they were able to actually increase the numbers in the marquee by almost uh, double. There were some three or four thousand when they arrived. There was around about double that number um, by the time that they'd finished organising the marquee into an effective fighting force. Nancy led the marquee in guerrilla warfare and ensured that the radio operators maintained contact with Britain. Once, after her radio operator was forced to destroy codes in a German raid, she cycled 500 kilometres round trip in 71 hours through several German checkpoints to obtain fresh codes without which there could have been no further nighttime airdrops of weapons, munitions and supplies. She said in an interview later that she believed that this was her most important single contribution during the war. In the same in interview, she shared that when she finished that ride, all she could do was cry. There was nothing left in her other than tears. Largely through her work, the Germans referred to the Auvergne region as the Fortress of France. After much planning, the SS moved against the Marquis in June 1944. In this particular battle, there were 22,000 Germans against 7,000 Marquis. In the battle that ensued, and it was spread over numerous villages in the area, 1,400 German troops lay dead. Only 100 of the Marquis were killed. After this, Nancy's war continued. She led a raid on Gestapo headquarters in Montecun and used her silent killing training to dispatch a guard on duty during a raid on a German gun factory. She also killed a female German spy. And incidentally, the male soldiers who captured the spy took pity on her and didn't want to kill her. But uh, Nancy, knowing that it was very important, she actually took on that, that job and killed the spy herself. On the 25th of August 1944, Paris was liberated and Wake led her troops into Vichy to celebrate. Sadly, she learnt that her husband, Henri, had been interrogated, tortured and killed by the Gestapo in August 1943. Apparently, because he refused to give them any information about her. The biggest price she paid for her activities in the war was the loss of the man she called the love of my life. She left the resistance in September 1944 and went to SOE headquarters in Paris and from there to London a month later. After the war, Nancy continued to work with the British Special Operations Executive in the Intelligence Department of the British Air Ministry. She found life difficult in post-war Europe and returned to Australia in January 1949. Shortly afterwards, she attempted to enter federal parliament for the Liberal Party, but was only just unsuccessful 
in defeating Labor's Doc Everett. Everett. Uh, she had a second attempt in 1951, again unsuccessfully. She returned to Britain in 1957, where she married former RAF POW John Forward and returned to Australia to live in 1959. Nancy Grace Augusta Wake was one of the most decorated women of World War II. In fact, some records say she was the most decorated woman, uh, woman of the war. She was awarded the George Medal, the 1939-45 Star, the France and Germany Star, the Defence Medal, the British War Medal 1939-45, the French Chevalier of the Legion of Honour, the French Croix de Guerre with star and two palms, the US Medal of Freedom with palm and French Medal de la Résistance. She was never honoured by Australia, despite being recommended by the Returned Services League, probably because she was actually a New Zealand citizen. Nancy lived most of her retirement in Port Macquarie, New South Wales, but after the death of John Forward in 1997, she returned to the United Kingdom, where she died in 2011. And it's quite interesting because as I read through a lot of the documents uh, about uh, Nancy Wake, I just had this funny feeling of some kind of deja vu. And then I realised last night that my own family had occasionally talked about her. And that was because Port Macquarie was about 30 miles from where I was brought up as a kid in Kempsey. So a lot of people in that area uh, knew about her and they knew something of her wartime contributions. This extraordinary woman was shaped by her experiences in Europe in the 1930s and lived out her convictions during the war. It appears that she never quite came to terms with civilian life after the war and she was bitterly disappointed that the Australian government never honoured her. She was given some assistance by the Howard government in 2004 to move out of a nursing home in England uh, to be cared for by a professional carer. She was never driven by religious conviction. She wasn't a religious person. In fact, she rejected her mother's strong religious convictions as a headstrong teenager. And I'm not relating her story because she was Christian. I'm relating her story because her life demonstrates that there is something in the human spirit that rises up against injustice and achieves extraordinary things against incredible odds. We remember the Nancy Wakes on Anzac Day quite ordinary people who found extraordinary resources within themselves to fight against injustice. And as a footnote, Nancy's medals are on display at the Australian War Memorial. I just want to make a, um, a comment or two in relation to some biblical principles here. And, uh, whoops, we should be trying to unmute ourselves. As I said, Nancy Wake was not, not a Christian. 
she didn't hold religious convictions and she had rejected the faith of her mother as a headstrong teenager. But you see, every human being was created by God and every human being has a sense of justice. We see it in our children. Even before our children are really able to make judgments, they strive against injustice. You know, if you've got two children, they will always be comparing the half cookies to ensure that neither half is bigger than the other. That's a manifestation of their sense of justice. There is something about being human that demands justice. And whether or not we're Christian, it is manifest in the way in which we react to our circumstances and often to things that we witness ourselves. As Nancy Wake witnessed that unbelievable, unbelievably cruel treatment of Jews in Vienna, it changed her life because she saw the injustice of that situation. I just want to share with you uh, two scriptures as we finish our Connect service today. In uh, Isaiah 1, verse 17, it says this, and I'm reading from the New King James Version. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. And in Micah 6, verse 8, which is well known to many of us, he has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. For those of us who are Christian, of course, we have a doubly good reason to fight against injustice. Because our, our Lord has called us to stand up against injustice. And on Anzac Day at this time of year, let us remember as Christians that all of us, regardless of whether we've ever actually responded to the call of God on our lives, all of us are made in his image. We are not gods, but we are like him. God created us in his image, in his likeness. And like God, we care about matters of justice. And perhaps for us as Christians at this Anzac time, it would do us good to reflect on how we live our lives in the context of justice and how we ourselves deal with injustice that we might see in our own world.